Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. We are in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 14. If so, if you'd open your Bibles there to 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's page 235 if you're using one of the Bibles there behind the seats. Um, I am breaking chapter 14 up into three sermons um, too much for one, uh, for sure. We would be here an hour and a half, and uh, I'm not sure you would want that uh, with a sermon. So we're going to break it up into three sermons, but there's some really cool things in these texts that I love. And uh, we've been kind of building. We began in chapter one. We're in 14. We're going to be finishing in 15 here in a little bit. Uh, so far, we've met the lives of Hannah. We've met Samuel. We've met Eli and his family. We've met the Israelites, we've met Saul, we've met King Nahash, we've met the Philistines, and just recently we met Jonathan. And all these are real people living in real life situations and doing life with the Lord, or uh, frankly, doing life without the Lord. And uh, I'm considered an honor to be able just to be able to look at them and have down and see what's going on in their lives. And yet, with all of that said, I think it's just really important to remind ourselves We are not in the Bible, we are not studying through the Bible to be awed by some faith heroes or some faith zeros. That is not what it is about. And this is not about admiring and being in awe of people. This is about the Lord. And this is about being in awe of God and watching how God moves and watching how God works. Ultimately, this is all about learning about the Lord. That's what this is about. In fact, this whole series, uh, I've been kind of uh, each Sunday, I've been orienting uh, the titles to each of the series where it's uh, the blank, uh, some trait, some characteristic of the Lord and life with, because it's ultimately about getting to know the Lord increasingly so. Hey, if you want to have a life that is being a life lived with the Lord, then that kind of life with requires the reality of coming to increasingly know and grow and knowing the Lord more and more. So all eyes on the Lord, uh, but the Lord involved with people because that's our reality as well. And uh, that increasing grasp of, uh, I just would say it this way. Here, here, here's, here's how I'd summarize up what's been going on. Uh, let me just summarize what's been going on. Uh, here we go. The ways of the Lord has been the first Sunday that we hit, the ways of the Lord. Then we came into the word of the Lord. And then we came into the glory of the Lord. And then we came into the sanctity of the Lord. And then we came into the grace of the Lord. And then we came into the work of the Lord. And then we came into the salvation of the Lord. And we entered into the fear of the Lord. And we entered into the purposes of the Lord. And today, it is about the power of the Lord. All of these are building blocks, and I'm trying to do this on the screen such that you get an idea of, listen, if you know the Lord is your Savior, or if you don't know the Lord is your Savior, for either we want for you to know the Lord, and we want for you to grow in that understanding of who the Lord is, and build blocks upon that each week as we go through God's word. And if I could say it, today we're on the power of the Lord, and the power of the Lord is all of that. 
all of who the Lord is comes into the greatness and the grandness and the power of who God is. And to be awed by God requires that, not just knowing that, but being awed by that, by being struck by that, increasingly so in our lives. We're not here to fill in a blank test, all right? Fill in the blanks on a test. We are here to get to know God. And increasingly so with that. A big view of God in life matters because a big view of God drives a big life for the Lord. And that's what we want to be happening in our lives. So today, we're beginning verses of chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. We're going to see a contrast. I was just going to tell you right up front, we're spending the vast majority of our time on the first seven verses. And then the last verses, we'll kind of just uh, cover in. But you're going to see a contrast here. The time we're spending is on these two guys who are doing life with the Lord. And then there's a contrast that finishes on one who's just seeming to not do that. And so God, I pray as we enter into your word that you would just take the distractions that might be going on in our life and you might just clear them out so that we can focus in on you. Because even with the distractions and the activities and the stresses of life, you are in those. And we wanna see you so that we can see life through you. So I just ask we'd be full here this morning. God, I pray that the spirit of God would be using the word of God in the lives of your people today. Show yourself, Lord, we ask for that. Show yourself greatly in the power of who you are. In Christ's name, amen. We're in chapter 14. Let me just set a little context. It's summer, and I know people are kind of in and out over the summer. So last Sunday, we were in chapter 13. I put a map up uh, on the screen that you kind of see here. Uh, no, Avon, Danville, Brownsburg, Plainfield, and Indy are not in Israel. I totally get that. However, last Sunday, I was working off of that map because the locations and the distances are so similar to our area right here that I think being able to get an idea of the distances are really important in how things work. So that's why they're up there, uh, just in case you're wondering. Uh, But we're in chapter 13, and kind of with that, Saul, Jonathan, and the people who were present with them, in other words, the army, they are based in Geba of Plainfield, Uh, But the Philistines are encamped in Michmash of Avon. Um, Verse 17, chapter 13, for Michmash of Avon, the Philistines raid into Brownsburg, into Danville, and into Greenwood. I didn't put Greenwood up here because strong west side. (laughs) And then verses 19 through 22 of chapter 13, it's noted uh, that the Philistines are technologically superior. There's a part of that where you read through it and you go, who cares? I think it actually matters in chapter 14 now for us. But then verse 23, that last verse of chapter 13, and the garrison of the Philistines were, or went out to the pass of Michmash Avon. That sets it up on what's going on. And we're in chapter 14. Let's go there. Uh, let's work on these first five verses. I love the way uh, Ralph, uh, I'm sorry, Dale Ralph Davis, that's quite a mouthful of a name, Dale Ruff Davis kind of lays some of this out. So I'm just following along with his. Sometimes other people say it better than I ever could. So verse one, the plan. Verse one, the plan. Here we go. Uh, On a day, on a day, or one day. Uh, By the way, that's an important statement. You'll see at the very end of this. I'll tell you this. Some days are big days of life. 
Certain times, certain days show up and tell the reality of what's going on in our lives and who we are. We don't live for these only one days. A lot of life is mundane. But here is one day. Uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, King Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor. By the way, that's English Standard Version. I prefer the other versions of that. The young man, it sounds like you got like an 11-year-old kid here. But that's not the case with this. Uh, by the way, in Numbers, talks about how uh, for Israel that you can't go into army, into military until you're 20 years old. So it's likely Jonathan is 20 years old here at this time because we don't find him showing up earlier in this. And there's, I don't want to go into all that. The timing is really intriguing to me, but we just don't have time for that uh, of how things flow out here. But there's this young man. He's probably also 20 years old, somewhere right around there, just to get some idea, maybe a little bit younger as an armor bearer. There's just some differences with that. But uh, on a day, uh, Jonathan, the son of King Saul, said to the young man, uh, to the attendant who carried his armor, and Jonathan said, come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Okay, we got to set this up. Jonathan, his armor bearer, uh, in chapter 13, verse 32, uh, only Saul and Jonathan had swords and spears. That's why when I was talking about just before chapter 14, the Philistines had all this technology and it tells us only Saul and Jonathan had uh, items of of heavy uh, use, of military use that would be made of metal kinds of things. No one else in the Israelite army had that. And that was one of the reasons that Jonathan had an armor bearer to carry things, to pull things on because he had the heavy weight stuff. And so we see this coming together, and I'll say this, uh, he's going into battle, uh, verse 16 um, of chapter 13, that tells us that they're positioned in Geba of Plainfield. I think in this, what's happened is Philistines are in Avon, they've shot out to Danville, they've shot out to Brownsburg, they've kind of come down here towards the Dead Sea to Greenwood, and yet in Plainfield, they're kind of on the north side of Plainfield there, if you will, Uh, the Israelites are still positioned there. And this is all happening kind of in that little little red spot. And in that red spot, we're going to read here that there's kind of like these two walls of of, of territory. This is not great uh, territory that you take a vacation in, okay? You don't hang out here. This isn't beach land like in the desert. This is rough territory with what's going on. So they're positioned there, and Jonathan, over here in Plainfield with the Israelite army, says to his armor bearer, hey, let's go over there. Let's go to the pass of Michmash, uh, to the Philistine garrison. Why? Why would this 20-year-old do that? Well, because 20-year-olds are kind of, no, I'm not going there. Because actually what we're going to find out is Jonathan has it rocking with the Lord. But I am asking the question right now. Jonathan, why? Why might you, in the idea here, everybody's stalled out in the Israelite army on the north side of Plainfield. He sees, can see across this territory to where this this garrison Philistines are. And he's like, hey, bud, let's go. By the way, let's fill it in a little bit here. Uh, Let's go over to the other side. Uh, And then it tells us, but he did not tell his father. Uh, If you haven't been here, his father is the king. Why would he not tell his dad? 
could be some possibilities. One is maybe the relationship isn't so great. Another might be as he knows that dad as king would tell him, no way, Jose. No way are you doing that. I have no idea why. But it's so interesting that the text tells us that he didn't tell his dad. Jonathan had a reason for not telling his dad. And I don't think it was because he was arrogant at all. So that's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Verse two, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah in a pomegranate cave at Migron. I gotta talk here just for a little bit. Uh, one, pomegranates back in that day were viewed as a very high-end food. It was a very luxurious food, and it's very interesting that it's told here right there. By the way, the Hebrew word that in the English Standard Version says Saul was staying in really kind of has this idea of sitting in. Now, there's this thing that says like in the English Standard Version, which kind of has a history from the Revised Standard Version, King James Version. It kind of talks about this cave, but a lot of you have a pomegranate what? I actually like that better. Not because I think it's a cooler picture, but I, I think that might be the better idea of what's really going on here. I'll just say it this way. It doesn't matter if he's in a tree, under a tree, or if he's in a cave. Here's the fact that's to be known. He's sitting. He's stuck. The king is stuck on what to do. We've been reading about how all this activity has been going around, and he was in Michmash of Avon, then he was down in Indianapolis, now we find that he's kind of over here in Plainfield, and they're all, uh, the Philistines are all going around. It's just chaos going around, and King Saul, while there's been a couple victories, he's at the stall point. And he's sitting here. And I think this is a reality, but I think the reality is a picture. Here is son Jonathan. Hey, let's go. Here's dad. I don't have the foggiest idea. I'm just going to sit here. Let me say this. There are times to go and there are times to sit. And wisdom knows when which happens. And one of the observations I would just make is this. Is we're gonna continue to see with the life of Saul. Saul has a problem of wisdom. Saul has a problem. He's sitting when he should be going and he's going when he should be sitting. And over here, Jonathan is like, let's go. Why would he be thinking that? Turn your Bibles to Leviticus 26, your favorite chapter in the Bible. Over to the left a little bit, Leviticus chapter 26. I want to take us to two passages here to help us see a couple things. I'm going to call Leviticus 26 kind of God's covenant agreement summarized in writing. It spells out some of the relationship of it all. It, it spells out if you do, I will. If you don't, I will. It spells out the house rules. By the way, pretty much every house has rules, right? I mean, if you don't, there's probably chaos. I mean, there's just certain house rules that you have, and that's what's taking place here in this covenant agreement with God's people. It's an orderly house, and this was written centuries earlier. And so uh, might Jonathan have been reading and thinking about this passage in light of their situation? Chapter 26, verse 7, it says, You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Verse eight, five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. I'm just wondering if this 20 year old dude knew his Bible. 
And this was running through his mind. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, a little to the right. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7, again talking about God's covenant agreement with his people Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. I just wonder if Jonathan might be meditating on this passage of Scripture in light of his situation and their crisis. Verse six, for you are a people holy to Yahweh, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery in the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, verse 10, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not uh, be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today, verse 12. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. I wonder if this 20-year-old Jonathan is thinking through a passage of scripture like that. I don't think Jonathan here uh, back over to 1 Samuel 14 is making some rash, brash, youngster decision. I don't think he's trying to be some hipster. I don't think he's trying to be the cool dude in the army. I think in light of what we're going to see here in just a second, Jonathan is a young man grounded in who God is and grounded in God's word and is acting out of that. Hey, those of you taking the systematic theology class right now, ground yourselves in that truth. You aren't just learning things to be able to spew things out of your mind about the Bible. You are learning things about your God and how he functions and how he works, that that would be the thing that drives us as we face and do life. Who God is drives how you and I do life. I think Jonathan is thinking like Job thought in Job chapter one. I think Jonathan is probably thinking like Noah thought with his build an ark because a flood is coming crisis. I think Jonathan is likely another one thinking like Abraham when God asked him to sacrifice your son, Isaac, your only son, crisis. I think uh, Jonathan is also like Moses when Moses is like, no, 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 not me. I can't do that. I think in all this, uh, Jonathan is thinking like what David will be thinking a few decades ahead from here. And when it comes to Goliath and it's like, wait a second. Who is our God? Why are we letting this big, ugly dude, I'm assuming he's ugly, big, ugly dude, why are we letting this guy do in light of what God has said? And here Jonathan is pulling a David and Goliath reality thing here, friends. And what do we grab onto? We don't grab onto it and go, Jonathan was awesome. 
We grab onto it from this. Jonathan had an amazing view of God and what God says about him and his relationship with us in life. He's not throwing God around at his every little crisis like he's in control of God. We're gonna see that in just a second. I am telling you, I am so impressed with the theology of this young man. Go, Jonathan. And all in it, Saul is sitting. Verse two, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gebeah in the pomegranate cave or tree in my ground. The people who were with him, the army, were about 600 men. I think that's there to remind us that from early chapter 13, there have been a lot of defecting and a lot of desertion going on in fear. And then verse three, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, the son of Telitub. No, that's not in here. The, bless their names. Including Ajah, the son of Ahitub, and Ichabod's brother. Ooh, there's a name. Son of Phineas. Ooh, there's a name. Son of Eli. The priest of the Lord in Shiloh. And he's wearing an ephod. What's going on here? We're learning about these leaders that are happening here. The king here. He's stuck sitting in his crisis. We learn that the army has been deteriorating down. And now we learn about this council. This council. Aijah, the great-grandson of Eli. This is really interesting. Where's Samuel? If you've been around following through with this, Samuel communicated that God has rejected Saul in this. By the way, Samuel was the one who also communicated that God had rejected Eli's house in this. And so now that Samuel has communicated that, uh, Saul, we don't see Saul repenting and coming back to Samuel as the prophet. We actually see what's happening here as Saul is sitting and Saul is now positioned counsel from a house that is going down. Aijah is the great-grandson of Eli, from a house that has been rejected by the Lord. And now Saul is seeking counsel from him. I'm just telling you, that tells the story of what's gone on. Saul is deprived of Samuel's support, so he turns to the priest whose great-grandson of Eli, whose priestly line has been rejected by God. By the way, it's noted that he's wearing an ephod. There's talk about that in that, but it has the uh, urim and thummim in that, and, and that's what's used to be able to go and seek of the Lord. I'll say this, I, 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 I commend Saul for having somewhere in there to seek the Lord, but, but I'm asking the question, Saul, you're going to the wrong source. For some of this stuff here. I don't have time to go into all the details of that. It's like here is a priest who's dressed with the ephod. He's ready to seek the Lord. Saul has him positioned there. And and he is now his new counsel. Listen, sometimes people over the years I've observed myself. And I've observed with other people. That oftentimes when people want to take us to God's word. And drive us there and give us counsel from God's word. And we don't like it. We'll go somewhere else. And I think that's what's happening here with Saul. And if you know the rest of the story of Saul, it gets worse. He goes to even creepier places for counsel. David Jobling says the glory had departed. His own royal glory gone. 
Where else would we expect Saul to be than with a relative of glory gone? Friends, your source of counsel matters. Your source of counsel matters. I commend Saul for having some counsel around him. But there's a problem with the particular counsel that he's putting around him right now. It's a rejected house. Where do you go for counsel? Who do you give, get counsel from? What is their worldview? What is their point of it? Where are they seeing God in this? What is their authority source? Along with that, I just want to put on the table, in the giving of counsel. What is your worldview? What is your viewpoint of God? What is your authority source as you are giving counsel with what's happening? 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says that God's word has everything we need for life and godliness. It tells us in there that it's teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God, that the woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're big about that around here. We're big about wanting to be people who disciple one another and encourage one another along from a grounding in the word of God first. Let's be that, people with a big view of God and a big view of scripture. Let's keep reading. Verse three, end of verse three. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. The army didn't know. Friends, this is really cool. We have a covert operation on our hands here. Two young men. Both we're gonna see here. I think both have a big view of God, not a careless view of God, the big view of God. And they go, here we go. Verse four, the place. Within the passes, by with Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side, a rocky crag on the other side. Got that? It's like rocky. There's a crag on each side <laughs> and it's rocky. The name of one was Bozes. Uh, it means the gleaming one. Might that be likely the north facing the south receiving the sun? Probably so. Uh, the other uh, name was uh, Sane, uh, the thorny one, the bramble bush, likely south facing north. It has more of the shade, so it has all these uh, growing up shrubbery there. Again, this is not flat land. This is uh, like rock wall territory. Verse five, the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south on the front of Geba. So you got two walls and one's on one side, one's on the other side. And to get from there over to the other, you've got to go down, you've got to go through and you've got to go up. It's horrible. You don't take a vacation here. This is not the area here. Joyce Baldwin says this, is, this was the last route anyone in their right mind would choose to take. I love that. Anyone in their right mind, normally. But someone with a big view of God, bring it on. Dad is stuck sitting. Son says, let's go. 
And so they begin to go, I wonder what they're going to do. I wonder what they're going to do. Covert operation, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man, his attendant who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. By the way, that last statement there, it is a bit of an uncircumcised uh, comment as much as uncomfortable it is to talk about it. It is one of these things where it was a comment that was being made. It was a comment of a reproach. Smack talk's going on here. We're gonna see this back and forth. But it's more than that. It's actually a term where Jonathan is theologically correctly defining the enemy. They are not part of God's covenant relationship as God had set up with Abraham. And he's designating that. This is actually a theological statement with what's going on here. And Jonathan is making that clarity of it. Listen, this is God's people taking on not God's people. People who could come to the Lord, people who could uh, come to Yahweh as their savior, yet they, in the text, I'll grab from the text earlier, yet the fact of the matter is they hate him. And they hate God's people. So that's who the enemy is. And it said, love this statement. It says after that, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Oh, my word. That is awesome theology. That is the kind of statement that we do not tell God what to do. We do not throw him around like he's some magic wand at our disposal. The fact of the matter is God is sovereign and God will do what God deems to do. And he calls us to call upon him and yet the fact of the matter is is sometimes God doesn't do what we would like to have happen. Have you ever noticed that? And he understands that. And he is not saying this is some, if I can say it this way, some cocky Christian with bad theology thinking that I can just cast God at anything I want. Go, God, go, God, go, God, go. This is a humble reality of seeing the greatness of God and yet also understanding I do not understand and I do not fully know the sovereign desires and will of God in this. The fact of the matter is, is God may deem in this that he takes us out. This is such a statement that is so similar to Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're about to be thrown in a red-hot furnace. And they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning furnace. But if not... We will not bow down. Do you see that? Listen, if you're, if, if you're one who is casting God around, I tell you this, get off your throne and let God back on it. Because he is the Lord. And he invites us to call on him. He invites us to plea before him. But when it comes right down to it, The Lord is the one who does what the Lord does because he knows the whole picture and he knows all of of the objectives trying to be accomplished. And I will just say, as I have met people over the years, oftentimes the reason people who are angry with the Lord are angry with the Lord 
is because the Lord hasn't done what they thought the Lord should do. And I get that. I can tell you some things in my own life where I'm like, I don't get that one, God. It's been a long time and I still don't get that one. But when it gets to the point where you and I start getting bitter with the Lord, pushing back on the Lord, angry with the Lord, and smack talking back on the Lord with our attitude and bad theology, it's a time for us to fall and repent. And to let him be sovereign. Isaiah 55, eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. End of Habakkuk 3, I love this. This is the Romans 8, 28 and 29 of the Old Testament. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. In other words, he's in deep trouble. Though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. So much for the prosperity gospel. Again. Verse seven, I wonder how his armor bearer is gonna be. Because you do realize when Jonathan's saying this for the armor bearer, he's like, dude, this is my life too, man. Right? And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. I've loved this guy for years. Bear with me. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Parents, would you love your kids respond in that way someday? Employers, wouldn't you love to have your employees respond that way? Do understand, I do not think at all that this armor bearer is just some guy in line to where he's like some blind allegiance. I don't think this is some Jonathan worship, some leader worship, some pastor worship, some celebrity worship. I think this is a spirit-driven response to a spirit-driven call that Jonathan put on the table. And I would suggest this, his armor bearer is giving a faith response just like Jonathan is. This is not a text to get a commander view of leadership, including the idea of blind followership. You know what I'm talking about. Kind of thing where it's like, I'm the leader, you're the follow, therefore I give the commands and you must blindly follow. Come on, out with that. So out with that. Demanding, commanding leadership is not the design. And also, by the way, critical followership is not the design either. What do I mean by that? Sometimes people are just critical all the time. Have you noticed we live in an angry world right now? The way people talk, I'm just gonna say it straight. The way God's people oftentimes are talking is a shame. I'm talking about the way God's people talk about other God's people. I'm talking about the way God's people talk about our president and what's going on. By the way, who put the kings in place? We don't worship him. We don't even have to love him. We can disagree. But I'm telling you, friends, the way people are talking today and the way the internet is out there, it is just like a vomit pool. 
I'm just calling on you and me to be careful because there is a way to disagree. There is a way to communicate that is biblical and not just like the world. We're called to raise disciples that follow and worship Jesus' leaders, not ourselves. Additionally, we're called to be disciples who also submit to one another, Ephesians chapter 5. There's a whole lot in that I could go. But I will tell you, I love this armor bearer. We don't even know the dude's name. I'm just going to call him awesome dude. I love it. And his awesome dude said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Those are the first seven verses. I told you they'd take the main amount of time. So let's go. Verse eight. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. Hey, by the way, how this guy put this all together, I have no idea. And I just want to say in this, be really careful, again, that we don't cast God around. But in it, somehow, God is working in this young man, and he has this thing where it's like, this is how this is going to work. You with me? Heart and soul, man. This is so cool. So verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. Where is that at? It's not all the way up when they got on their other side. They like come down their side. They come across this valley area that has a rough terrain going on and they show themselves. It's like, hey, hey boys. And then they're waiting. I wonder what they're both thinking. I wonder what they're both wanting. I mean, just human honesty in it. I mean, there are just times where it's like, oh man, I hope we just have to go back home. I want to be the guy that stands there and says, go, let's go. But I don't know, maybe I'm weaning out right at the moment. So here they, both of them show themselves. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have, page turn, hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. I'm telling you, this is so guys in smack talk. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, telling you, man, these two young men, I want them on my team. Come up after me. Look at this theology. For the Lord has given them into the hand, not of you and I, of Israel. This is a young man who knows his Bible. knows what God has said, what God has done, what God has set up. And he is not using God. He is seeing a big, powerful God, and he is moving in faith, knowing that God is working in and moving him. Come up after me, bud, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Verse 13, then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. Why would the text tell us that? Because it gives you an idea of the feel on the climb. And his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. 
And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, about a half for a length of the acre, acre of land. We're not quite sure in the Hebrew exactly what all that means, but in a small territory, verse 15, and there was panic in the camp. Oh, and in the field. Oh, and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. God's been quaking the earth through 1 Samuel a number of times. And here it quakes again. And it became a very great panic. Verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul of Gebeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Here's what's going on. So Saul, where he's still at, is seeing this whole thing take place. They can see it, they can hear it. And all of a sudden, he, they're sitting around doing nothing, not sure what to do, stuck in fear. And they all of a sudden hear this commotion going on. And, and this may have been a mile, it may have been two miles in distance, but those who are watching hear this, see this, what takes place. And then, and, and so what happens? Uh, then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who is gone from us. Hey, he knew something might be coming from his own camp that took place. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer, awesome dude, were not there. So Saul said to Aijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. I don't have time into that. Uh, now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Don't read too fast. Because Saul was kind of doing something right. He was going, he was seeing something was happening. He found out what was going on. He's going to the priest. What do I do? What do I do? And before the priest carries on through to, to be that intercessor of God, he, he, he tails it out. Listen, you have a son up on a hill grounded in who God is and what God has established things. And you have a dad over here who is now ignoring what God said to do and is ignoring seeking God out and he's just brash. And he's just moving along. I don't have time to go into it further. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand, verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. I kind of, I literally, I put question or parenthesis or what do you call those quotation marks around the battle? Like what battle? Like kind of they want it. Well, and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow and there was great confusion. In other words, the Philistines are killing themselves. God's so awesome. Verse 21, now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned uh, to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were, were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. And so the Lord, Yahweh, saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond more next week. Saul the father is pictured as someone essentially doing life without the Lord, I would suggest. Jonathan the son and his armor bearer are doing life with. 
Saul, the father. The power of God really is absent in his thinking and therefore absent in his actions. Let me say that one more time. Power of God is absent in his thinking. And when the power of God is absent in our thinking, the power of God becomes absent in our actions. But like Jonathan in the armor bearer, when the power of God is in your thinking, your life will be lived differently. When the power of God and who God is, is captivating you, is possessing your mind, your life is lived differently. When the power of God is in your thinking, the power of God begins to show in your actions. You want to make some changes in your life? Get to know God more. Grab a hold of him more. Who he is. How he works. What relationship with him looks like. And as we dig there, life begins to change. And we so often just want to change the fruit on the tree. Instead, I think as we see this all unfolding, we see the stories of men and women in the scriptures who either do or don't dig into who God is. And when they do, the fruit shows it. Dig in to who the Lord is. And so, Lord, we ask for your help in the doing of that. We ask for the Philippians chapter two, desire by the spirit of God to will and to want that. Father, we are so often just bound in our circumstances and how they impact us around, and we get that, I get that. And yet, Lord, the reality of everything that is coming out is who you are. And God, we want to be people that are increasingly plugging ourselves into the power of who you are, knowing you more, being awed by you more, seeing you more, desiring you more, beholding you more, understanding the traits and the characteristics of who you are, not to use you, but to know you and to behold you. And as we do that, as we then move through life and the crises of life, the blessings of life come along, when you are front and center, when you are bigger and bigger before us in our own eyes, in our own understanding, oh God, life begins to look differently. Father, here we see these two young men. In modern day terminology, we see these two millennial men. And these two millennials, they have strong theology of who you are. Including the realization that you might bring what they would desire and yet you might have a different plan. And they tap into that humbly. Because they want to see your name great. And your name made known before themselves and before others. Father, I would just pray more of that in us. You are the awesome, powerful, all 
mighty God. Help us to behold you more. In Christ's name we pray.